what do you do if you are an enslaved woman and you have a child? And are you going to risk bringing that child with you on this incredibly difficult, dangerous, risky escape route? Or do you wait and try to find some other opportunity for freedom, perhaps by the law? And in the U.S. and Mexico borderlands, there are so many instances of women doing that. Welcome to Migrations, a world on the move, a series brought to you by Cornell University's Migrations Initiative. I'm Eleanor Painter, postdoctoral associate in Migrations, and your host for this podcast that seeks to understand our world through the interconnected movements that shape it. This season, we're thinking about waiting, exploring how questions of time shed light on border crossing, border control, and experiences of limbo and delay. In this episode, we think historically, bringing the lens of waiting to the context of the Underground Railroad. While we might normally think about the Underground Railroad as a set of clandestine movements, freedom seeking itself is also an act of waiting for the right time or the right circumstances. Dr. Gerard Aching, one of our guests in this episode, has described freedom seeking along the Underground Railroad as a form of civil disobedience. What do we learn about this kind of migration as resistance when we reflect on how experiences of waiting may have shaped freedom seekers' options and decisions? What does waiting tell us about freedom? In this conversation, we also think about historiography and processes of waiting. Our historical knowledge is always changing, as some stories are finally recovered or made public or perhaps imagined in new ways. In recent years, understandings of the Underground Railroad have expanded to include more information about local sites involved in people's escape north towards Canada and about the experiences of people who fled south into Mexico, a significant dimension of those freedom-seeking movements that's only now entering broader public awareness. I speak with Dr. Gerard Aching and Dr. Alice Baumgartner, scholars who help fill gaps in our knowledge about people's escape from enslavement in the U.S. Alice Baumgartner's recent book on the topic is called South to Freedom, Runaway Slaves to Mexico and the Road to the Civil War, published by Basic Books in 2020. More locally, Gerard Aching and a team of colleagues and students are working with a church in Ithaca, New York, working with the material history of the Underground Railroad and Journeys North, a project that is still underway as we release this episode. Our conversation about these projects takes up waiting in terms of the violence of enslavement, as well as the hope and opportunity that people seized in order to escape. And waiting is also about translation, imagination, and excavation. So in this episode, we're focusing on the Underground Railroad. Um, and I guess I would start also with a question about terminology, because I want to be careful myself with, with how I'm referring to the people whose journeys we're talking about when we speak. And I've brought the two of you in conversation. I'm very excited about this because you're working on the Underground Railroad from very different perspectives and also in different regions. So, Gerard, I was um, really... Um, 
moved by a talk that you gave last year when you talked about the Underground Railroad as illustrating a kind of migration as resistance. And I'm also really interested in hearing more about the work that you're doing on the Underground Railroad locally here where we are in the Finger Lakes region. And Alice, I'm really glad to have you here in particular for the perspective you're going to bring on this really under-discussed aspect of Journeys to Freedom um, Southward Movement, which, um, I mean, I'm especially struck, I grew up in Texas and did not know about these, um, this aspect of the Underground Railroad or these journeys. So um, I'm really glad to be able to put them in conversation and hear from you about your work. I'm thinking about enslaved people who are escaping situations of enslavement and seeking freedom. What words are really central for you in thinking about these journeys? Because I want us to be on the same page if we can. Well, uh, first, let me say I'm, I'm very pleased to be here and thank you for this invitation because it's, uh, it's a topic um, that I've not you know, concentrated on, but I think could be very rich for our conversation. I'm very pleased to meet Alice um, and to have had a look at her book because I also would like to know a lot more about that work. Um, since it's um it's it's not uh, one that I'm familiar with, um, but just thinking about the words, I think one of the things that you mentioned is you know I refer to the people going north as freedom seekers. I mean that's one of the key words, and I think that would also be of interest, um, you know, going south because um, the difference between thinking of simply of fugitive uh, gives you the sense of uh, of fear of immediate action, you know, um, whereas if you're thinking about freedom seekers, uh, you're beginning to get a sense of the reflection that may be involved before taking decisive action uh, to go into um, clandestine migration, um, to, put your hand, to put yourself in the hands of complete strangers. Um, and places that are unfamiliar to you as you head north or as you head south. So I think that um, uh, I, I'm glad that we are thinking about about the whole question of, of waiting and of, you know thinking about agency because it's a time it can be a time of reflection before taking decisive action. And I think that goes both for my work as well as for Alice's. Um, so maybe we can just uh, begin there. Yeah. Alice, did you have anything to add with the question of terminology as we begin to speak about this? I've really struggled with this terminology. I understand the critique of using fugitives from slavery, runaway slaves, fugitive slaves, both for the connotations that Gerard mentioned about fugitivity, as well as the desire to use person-first language, like enslaved people rather than slave. At the same time, I have reservations still about freedom seeker to mean a fugitive from slavery because it seems to suggest that the people who weren't escaping by fleeing, that they somehow weren't seeking freedom. And it's one of the reasons I was so excited about this theme of waiting, because waiting is part of freedom seeking. And I wonder if maybe the solution to this perhaps academic question of terminology, is to think about freedom seekers in a, the broadest of senses. They're probably most enslaved people were themselves freedom seekers who just had different opportunities, some who had to wait longer than others, some who waited 
their entire lives without having the opportunity to make good on that seeking. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point because I think one of the people that I, one of the persons I think about is is um, the case of Frederick Douglass in you know, his narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, where he mentions. Uh, the turning point. He calls it the turning point, and people think about this very often, where he comes into a pitched uh, struggle with with uh, Mr. Covey. Mr. Covey is supposed to be a slave breaker, and so many people sort of focus on that particular episode where Frederick Douglass uh, fights and then does not get punished by this uh, so-called slave breaker. Um, and so he sees that as a particular sort of triumph. And then he calls it a turning point. A turning point meaning sort of a point of no return where he lets it be known that anybody who wants to beat him, that is Frederick Douglass, will have to fight uh, to the death. Right. So he speaks about that turning point. But then what's not uh, studied as much is where Frederick Douglass talks about a tender point. And when he talks about the tender point, he's referring to those people who decided not to run away because they have kin and family who are very important to them. So that's why, you know, I mean, the lesson for me in sort of focusing on a turning point and a tender point is to think of any enslaved person as having to deliberate between leaving, leaving one's kin and family behind, which he says is very difficult, and he does not put down anybody for doing that. In fact, he empathizes. Right, which to me says that uh, he's saying that people are making deliberate decisions during a moment of you know of reflection, where they can either is it with these circumstances is it worth it for me to leave my family and friends behind, or are the circumstances such that I cannot take it anymore that a turning point is a point of no return, right? So I think between those two points we get a sense of 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 waiting deliberating. Uh, making sort of rational choices about leaving or or, or staying. So I, I I completely agree with that point, Alice. Maybe it's useful. I I got so into what you were saying about the question of terminology that I didn't take a minute to just ask you to introduce yourselves. And so maybe we can zoom back out for a second. Um, and I'll, I'll ask you each to situate your work for us, since we are going to be moving between different regional contexts and also different moments in time. Um, and maybe I'll turn to Alice. Could you introduce yourself and, and offer a little bit of information about your work on the Underground Railroad and these movements? Absolutely. I'm Alice Baumgartner. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of Southern California. And I originally was started graduate school as a Latin American historian and was doing research in the summer of 2012 in northeastern Mexico and came across just document after document about enslaved people escaping to Mexico and their enslavers attempting to kidnap them back. And most surprising of all to me as a Mexican historian, someone who is training to be a Mexican historian, that Mexican citizens and Mexican officials were often helping to assist these enslaved people in resisting their kidnappers. And that sent me down this rabbit hole of trying to understand why enslaved people were escaping to Mexico, what types of lives they were able to create for themselves there, and why the Mexican, their Mexican neighbors were assisting them in that 
And as a result of that rabbit hole, I found myself becoming more of a U.S. historian, even though I have this training in Mexican history, and really have just learned so much from the huge, deep, and complex scholarship about slavery in the United States, uh, fugitivity in the United States, as well as in other regions in Latin America. I really appreciate hearing you contextualize the, how you got to this project part two, because your book to me speaks to the history of the Civil War and the history of enslavement in this country in a much more transnational way than I'm used to hearing discussed. And I really appreciated that in your work. Gerard. Yeah. So, um, I'm in two departments. I'm in the Romance Studies Department at, at Cornell as well as at Africana. And uh, my placements in both departments have been, you know, very good for the kind of work that I've wanted to do. I've, I've been trained as a Caribbeanist and I've been doing most of my work on slavery uh, and colonial literatures in the 19th century, uh, the Caribbean uh, region. So, of course, this is another story of somebody who's being trained in one area. And here I am in upstate you know, central New York, um, uh, surrounded by, you know, the roots of, of the Underground Railroad. So it was then that I began to, about six, six, seven years ago, began to co-teach a course on the Underground Railroad, a seminar, an undergraduate seminar, and where we would visit some of the sites here. And this is where the whole story began for me. So um, the challenge for me is to be thinking spatially quite differently, because when we think of a, a sort of an escape uh, in the Caribbean context, we're not thinking there was no Underground Railroad. Uh, you think of escape as heading to what might be called Bush or Mon or Monte. And it, it's the place that is both uh, an escape from the plantation, but it's also a site of possible uh, worship, of being able to uh, sustain certain cultural practices and so on away from the plantation. And so to be thinking about the different type of space here of an underground railroad was quite interesting. And in both cases to, you know, to bring them together on the whole question of what do we understand by, by notions of, of freedom, you know, given those, those spaces. So it's been an interesting challenge and, you know, also feel very fortunate to be able to go out into this landscape and here in central New York and be able to to go to sites with students and and now with faculty and collaborate with them on, on projects. What are some of those sites? Well, one of the sites is that we have right here in, in Ithaca is the St. James AME Zion Church, which is our principal uh, underground railroad station. And this is where we are currently, well, this weekend we'll be beginning an excavation there with uh, colleagues from the the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Um, so uh, this is in uh, conjunction, of course, with the approval of the church. The church, St. James, is very excited about it. So we're having um, colleagues from, from that institute, and in fact, they've brought on approximately eight other faculty uh, members to do this, this really bona fide excavation in which we would have uh, 12 teams of Cornell students, mostly from, from archaeology, but not only, but also from from English and history, um, and uh, and uh, kids from the neighborhood, kids from the community, will also be part of those teams. 
So from this Saturday and for approximately nine Saturdays, we'll be, you know, doing a bona fide professional, you know, scholarly um, uh, excavation with them. So that's, you know, that's, that's become our key area. But then there are also other areas throughout this, this region, uh, not far up is Harriet Tubman's residence, you know, about 40, 50 minutes away from here going north. Um, and in between, there are lots of the places, there are lots of homes that were Quaker homes that were hiding places, things like that. So we, we are, we are sort of discovering the documented as well as the ones that are all history and folklore. So that's, we're making sure to have that be present because I think when you begin to speak to some of the people around here about the, the Underground Railroad, people just have a lot to say. And, you know, they may know of a family member, they may know of somebody who lived in a, in the residence before, and it just opens up a whole sort of, the only term I can think of as a sort of a historical imagination of what it would have been like to be traveling on the Underground Railroad or assisting people on it, you know. So um, that's, I, I mean, I could name sites, but there are so many. <laughs> yeah. You bring up several questions that I think um, have a direct connection also to, to the problem of time or the question of time and waiting too, in part, and this is maybe something that both of you could address in different ways through your work, the question of actually doing this work now, um, you know, a couple of centuries after the events themselves. And I wonder if it's useful to also just spend a, a moment thinking about um, what what is the nature of that work? What What are we waiting to understand or what kinds of processes of recovery or memory work um, are you involved in and how is that um, maybe engaging these stories and these experiences in a different way because so much time has passed? That's such a good question and I, I am having a hard time figuring out even where to begin. But one of the first things that came to mind when you started asking about memory is the difference in how we remember the Underground Railroad that ran to the northern states in Canada versus how we really don't even know that much about the escape route that ran to the south and to Mexico. And there has been a lot of really great work that is in, in motion right now from, for example, the National Park Service, National Underground Railroad Network for Freedom. They're adding more sites in Texas uh, to try to help us make this more present in our contemporary understanding. Texas Humanities is also doing is a NEH funded um, teacher training program through for Texas history teachers and K through 12 is doing a lot of really great work to help those teachers teach the role of slavery and say the Texas revolution. But in general, I mean, I didn't know about the that enslaved people were escaping to Mexico when I first came across these documents and Mexican archives. And that issue of why it is that this escape route has remained so understudied was something that really fascinated me because it wasn't it wasn't that people weren't paying attention to these communities of descendants of enslaved people who had escaped to Mexico. Kenneth Wiggins Porter, who was a Harvard-trained historian in the early 20th century, really one of the key historical figures for studying African-Americans in the West, he went 
to northeastern Mexico in the 1940s and interviewed the descendants of some of these enslaved people who had escaped to Mexico. And he couldn't get his manuscript published because although he had written about topics that today sound really minuscule and, and not that important, I, I, uh, you know, French municipal assemblies, they're important, they're important, but, but that, that this particular story, editors sent him letters saying no one's interested in this at all. And part of that might be that he was writing in the 1940s. He hadn't had that interest in African-American history as a result of the civil rights era. And we also have this problem where we think about Mexico not as a place that someone would want to escape to, but a place that people want to escape from. And that assumption, I think, makes it harder for us to see that that might be an opportunity for enslaved people to escape. But the final point that I wanted to make, and it relates to Kenneth Wiggins-Porter and this question of time and how do we do this work when it is you know, over a century ago that this was happening. And I was so fortunate that Kenneth Wiggins Porter had done these interviews with these descendants in the 1940s, only one generation removed from those freedom seekers who actually escaped. And his interviews were one of the few sources that really helped to understand what it was like to live, to escape and to live in Mexico because the, the sources that existed in Texas and in Mexico, it was really hard to trace people across that border, which really stands testament to their ingenuity, their resourcefulness that they evaded their enslavers in the same way that they were evading historians now. But the, um, the, the, both there are these difficulties about studying, studying fugitivity with so much time lapsed and that that creates some interesting questions about how we remember these particular escape routes. I want to, Gerard, I want to come to you with this question about studying after, but since you brought it up, Alice, I, I think it would be helpful for people to hear from you um, what, it, what kinds of things you are learning from these interviews. So what do we know about who was escaping to Mexico and what, what kinds of experiences they, they went through? What were they navigating? Absolutely. So Kenneth Wiggins Porter was interviewing the descendants of the Black Seminole who were originally the descendants of freedom seekers from Georgia and the Carolinas who had joined the Seminole Indians in Florida. They had been forcibly uh, forced from their homelands in Florida, first Indian territory, and in 1850, a contingent of Black Seminole and Seminole Indians left Indian Territory and went to Mexico, where they joined a military colony in the northeastern Mexican state of Coahuila. They became this magnet for freedom seekers from Texas. There was this, this Black community in northeastern Mexico that was armed to defend the Mexican border from intruders of all kinds. And so it's no surprise that that was a draw, that freedom seekers would escape to that military colony. And so the descendants that, Fred, that Kenneth Wiggins Porter was interviewing 
are the descendants of those black Seminoles and those freedom seekers who had escaped to join them in Mexico. Hard to sort of differentiate who, who were the ones who were originally coming from Florida, who were the ones who had come and escaped to Texas. Uh, but I think that that distinction is less important than the view that those interviews gave us that I was able to include in the book about what life was like for those who had joined the military colony, that they, uh, the, it showed a lot about the tensions between the Black Seminole and the Seminole Indians. It showed the difficulties of being in this position where they had to take up arms at a moment's notice to help defend Mexican sovereignty against uh, invaders from the United States, but also indigenous peoples. They were having to pay a price for their freedom. And that was conscription in Mexico's campaign to try to exterminate these, uh, what they call Indios Barbaros. The, I, it technically translates as barbarous Indians. Um, so there was, it, it shows us really the complexities of what quote unquote freedom meant in, in Mexico is far from a perfect freedom. That said, there are, we know, some other freedom seekers who escaped to Mexico who did not join that military colony. That was one option. But other freedom seekers took a different option. They found work in Mexico's cities, sometimes on ranches, on haciendas, and those freedom seekers had a different experience, although it's much harder to reconstruct that experience because those freedom seekers often adopted Mexican names. They married into the Mexican community. They learned Spanish. Um, and all of those factors make it much harder to trace what happened to them. But we can sort of piece together a little bit that they, they were integrating much more into the community than, say, the Black Seminole and the freedom seekers who escaped to join them. Um, they were facing a variety of different types of and degrees, of course, of labor arrangements in Mexico, which was a cash poor economy, which did rely on um, labor systems like indentured servitude and debt peonage. So they also had a different, uh, a different experience than those in the black Seminole military colony. But long story short, <laughs> Kenneth Wiggins Porter helped to by those interviews helped to fill in a pretty big piece about at least one option for freedom seekers who escaped to Mexico, which was joining these military colonies. Thanks. And Gerard, I'll come back to you with the question of, um, again, engaging with these histories in various points in time, and maybe if you could also give us a sense of what it is that you, perhaps what you anticipate being able to engage with thanks to the excavation or what you anticipate learning. Um, I think uh, just, you know, thinking about the time lapse itself between, you know, thinking of, of, of a movement, uh, of an underground railroad movement, uh, roughly between the 1830s and 1860s, you know, um, as the sort of, of major uh, sort of movement of people. According to Eric Fona, that's between 1,000 and 5,000 freedom seekers a year uh, would head. And that's a big guesstimate because, again, this we're, there's so much we're not supposed to know because it was clandestine. It was civil disobedience, and you could have been, you know, it's a, it would have been a federal crime to assist anybody on the Underground Railroad. 
So there's a lot that we're not supposed to know, which is why just sort of pedagogically, um, I ask my students to read the slave narratives and then also to read the histories of the Underground Railroad. And then I ask them to write a roughly five-page creative writing assignment from the perspective of a freedom seeker or from the perspective of someone assisting. And we've managed to put that, you know, those, those narratives on a website. But again, that is an attempt to try and capture these stories or an understanding as what it's what I mean by the historical imagination again to try and, 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 you know, go through an exercise in empathy to understand that situation to the best that we can, you know, um, as a sort of compensation for the fact that there's so much that we won't know or will ever know. About the Underground Railroad. But nevertheless, I think the Underground Railroad itself serves as a sort of a blueprint for, uh, well, it was one of the first sort of movements in which you had black and white Americans working together for a common cause. And so very often my students, myself, other faculty also think of, for example, the Black Lives Movement and, and its allies. You know, so the questions of who is an ally, what is an ally? Um, what are the circumstances? What are the requirements for allyship become important? And so there's a blueprint for that earlier on um, in which we can see what worked, what didn't work you know, in terms of the Underground Railroad. So there, there are lessons to be learned from, from, from that time. Um, and I think they're, they're most relevant uh, today. I mean, one of the things that we can that we do in thinking about the Underground Railroad is just to get a sense of the different organizations, uh, abolitionist organizations, to see that they weren't all equal. They were all they were doing different things. Some were interested in uh, emancipating uh, African Americans so that they could be sent to colonize, you know, to leave the United States and go to to West Africa, which was very different from you know, uh, organizations that wanted immediate abolition of slavery and so on. So we, we get a chance to see, again, the possibilities of allyship, uh, you know, the, the strategies that work and didn't work. So I think it, it's it's good for us to be thinking back at this period, the Underground Railroad, as, as a sort of a blueprint for some of these questions. Uh, the second part of it was about uh, the question you asked about um, what you anticipate learning from your excavation. Oh, yeah, um, it's a big question that comes up, and it's the question that uh, the archaeologists, my my colleagues, get. And the challenge that I've put to them is uh, we've already begun to unearth some sort of ceramics and and uh, a glass from mid 19th century so just about when st james st james was built uh, 1833 to 1836 so that in fact we're beginning to get some materials ready and that was just a preliminary dig because the real thing begins tomorrow um and so i asked them i said whatever you find we will consider to be signs of hopefulness signs of um resilience signs of, you know, um, of courage. And I think we're on the same page there because there's a way in which, uh, again, going through the Underground Railroad, uh, that experience uh, may be seen as one of flight, but we also need to, to make certain that people understand that that flight was also an act of courage. 
you know, so that in fact finding you know these these artifacts will be helpful for us in just sort of telling that story. And so uh, the most important thing for us and what makes our project with St. James coherent is just we're interested in, in assisting St. James to tell its story. Um, so that's part of it. It sounds like for both of you, putting these stories together, either through physical objects and this material work or, Alice, your work with these interviews and different kinds of documents that you found, I imagine requires a lot of also reading between the lines. And I love this concept of the historical imagination because it seems to sort of acknowledge that kind of creative work that's required. And I don't mean creative in a sort of um, fantastical way, but in a, in a sort of a opening up new ways of seeing for things that haven't been documented. Um, and I wonder what you both think is especially significant now about being able to put these different regional contexts into conversation. What other aspects of these journeys or maybe bigger questions about freedom and, um, and that moment in time by looking at these contexts together, by seeing it as, if it's fair to say, by seeing that somehow as a more complete history. One of the questions that I always get when I talk to both academic and public audiences about enslaved people escaping to Mexico is, well, was it an underground railroad? And I think the assumption behind that is, were there safe houses with candles in the window and quilts hanging, this popular imagination about the Underground Railroad to the north that has been shaped by this very long history of, um, you know, Wilbur Siebert, who conducted these interviews with conductors on the Underground Railroad in the late 19th century, this I hope I'm not exaggerating too much by saying a, a romanticized vision of the Underground Railroad in which the white conductors are the main actors, the main protagonists, rather than the enslaved people themselves who are escaping, as Gerard said so movingly, as a testament to their courage, as a testament to their hopefulness that there could be something better elsewhere. And one of the things that I think we get so clearly from the comparative perspective is that the center stage is really occupied by the freedom seekers themselves. And that even the Underground Railroad, as we know it to the Northern States and Canada, it was not that free African-Americans were participating in that alongside white people, that this is, this is not a story of white saviors. It's really a story of African-American ingenuity and resourcefulness and courage and hope despite all of the odds. And the same is true of the escape route to Mexico, that it wasn't as organized as we know thanks to the work of Eric Foner and others. It's not as organized as, it, as the northbound route. There were occasional people who we know helped enslaved people escape to Mexico, but it, it was, there weren't safe houses and there weren't these networks where they would be able to send someone from one place to another. 
at least according to current research, you know, we're still, uh, there's, there are really interesting archaeological studies that are in process right now in Texas that maybe will change that. But I think it doesn't, regardless of what they find, it doesn't really matter whether it was organized or not, because the thing that is, so, is most important about these escape routes are the enslaved people themselves and what they were able to do and the fear that they provoked among their enslavers by the mere act of trying to escape. The, these are points that are, that are well taken because there is a degree to which the Underground Railroad is romanticized and romanticized in the way that, that Alice mentioned. I think, and I agree, that if we were to think of the freedom seekers at the most basic level of wanting a better life and wanting to be out of bondage, then we would have to understand that these, that the movements north, the movement south, was occurring before anything was recognized as an underground railroad, right? So the escape itself, the, um, the, the courage that was required, because not, not only would we think primarily of if someone was escaping from a plantation, the sort of physical, um, obstacles, you know, the threat to life and limb you know, in terms of the escape is one thing that comes to mind. But then, you know, the generations of tales told by the by the slave owners that they would be that escaping to someplace uh, would mean that um, the freedom seekers would be escaping to destitution, they would to poverty, to hunger, to the many ways in which or that they would be forgotten, that they would be, you know, driven um, into states of wildness and so on, you know, um, these were the things that the slaveholders uh, were saying forever, right? So that in fact, it's not just the physical obstacles, but then there was a whole, you know, a sort of psychological work that slaveholders were doing, you know, to, to have people not run away. At the same time that slaveholders are telling people the North or others that slaves are better off on the plantations, than you know, Africans were in were in Africa. So these were the tales, and so when you had the the mere act of running away, just contradicted you know uh, the ways in which um, slaveholders justified enslavement, justified the de the dehumanization of Africans and African Americans. So the mere act of of leaving the plantation did that, you know, and we could think of it just the numbers that went up. Uh, to the north, for example, you know, uh, caused the sort of consternation that uh, led the southern, you know, slaveholders to push uh, in Congress, right, for things like the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, um, as a way to make um, assisting freedom seekers a federal crime, which was a way to get around the personal liberty laws that were enacted in the northern states that would give uh, freedom seekers some sort of protection, right? So uh, running away just flew into the face of the, that discourse from, from the Southern slaveholders. Um, and I think that's important and that's beyond, above and beyond the fact of the Underground Railroad because people were escaping before that. Right? It's not to say, and again, also to Alice's point, that um, the people, and I think also Eric Foner is right, that the people who, it's not only the freedom seekers, but the people around the black churches, for example, who either free or freed themselves, who were assisting with collecting a penny a week, for example, just to buy the clothing and food needed uh, to get people on the underground railroad. Their stories have, have only, you know, not been told, you know, so 
Um, I mean, all that needs to happen, you know. Uh, so it's not understood as saviorism, as white saviorism, as, as Alice mentioned, but you know, very important contribution on the back, uh, uh, on the part of black communities, you know, around the churches and in rural areas as well as as urban, to help freedom seekers. Just to to tie it back to the question of waiting and the question of time, what you bring up makes me think about you're addressing the making movement possible as as one key aspect of this and the different ways in which that happened and the different actors involved. Making making escape possible in the face of these uh restrictive laws, for example, these violent policies in the face of all of the obstacles that they confronted. You also talk about then, it sounds to me like a kind of manipulation of time as a, as a way of, I mean, and of course, people talk about this in general with enslavement as sort of holding the future captive. But it seems like this is also a very specific instance of that, that, that what you talked about, Gerard, with the you know, the manipulation of what they would tell people awaited them, for example, is a somehow a play on time to sort of hold the future out as the either giving a different picture of it or making making the future somehow impossible. I mean, the, uh, um, I think that, you know, uh, one of the things that the, the slaveholders, in fact, did then was to have a sense or to give the sense both to the to the north as well as to the to the to the enslaved that being better off on the plantation was already a sort of civilized time right there was a time where uh, civilization could be cultivated whether it's it's um, thinking about sort of the civic institutions but also of religion as well you know, um, that, that there could be some access to that. And, and in that sense, slaves were better off in this time, in this sort of quote-unquote civilized time, which is in fact barbaric, you know, by the very institution of, of slavery. Um, so that was the myth, you know, of a, a, of a you know, sort of forward-looking time in which, in which um, the enslaved were, were labor, but at the same time contributing to a sense of, a more genteel society in, in, in some strange <laughs> um, distortion of the word, you know. Um, so there is that. I think there is that play on on the plantation time being a different time from quote unquote primitive time from where Africans, you know, uh, might have come from, according to the you know to the biases of, of southern slaveholders. That also just made me think. Gerard, about you, you were mentioning Frederick Douglass's narrative earlier and how he talks about how he doesn't know the year when he was born. You can only guess at his age and the dates in the early parts of his narrative. He, it's guesswork. And then he learns how to read and write. And he says, I can now begin to give dates that the freeing of his mind from the lies that enslavers were propagating, that that's when he can enter time. And as Eleanor, you're putting out, putting forward so, so beautifully this idea that he can then begin to envision a future in a way that was denied to him in this timelessness, plantation time without time. I'm thinking about the ways that people are referring to the Underground Railroad now. And recently, 
um, scholars working on, you know, contemporary precarious migration um, into the U.S. and also in the Mediterranean have cited the Underground Railroad as a kind of reference point to think about um, different practices of resistance and resilience in these contexts. And I wondered if you would comment on how that, whether that works. Um, I mean, we, you've also both talked about the risk of romanticizing the Underground Railroad. Um, I don't mean to say that the you know scholars focused on migration today are doing that, but I just wonder, um, you know, maybe it's useful to sort of think about how, when it works to, to use that as a kind of metaphor, or if there are um, ways in which it doesn't quite fit thinking about the context of, for example, um, Mexico-U.S. migration today or um, Africa-Europe migration via the Mediterranean. Um, I think that's, um, you know, just thinking of the use of, of the underground road as a metaphor. I mean, if you were to think along very strict lines of thinking of the historical circumstances, then it, it, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't be accurate in the sense that there are certain circumstances that lead us to be speaking about the Underground Railroad as a somewhat organized activity of civil disobedience, right? Um, this is to say people of conscience, citizens of conscience within the country reacting in, in, in forms of civil disobedience against their country in order to um, have people travel uh, to, to some state of freedom, right? Um, but if it's the kind of metaphor that's, that's describing or invoking, uh, again, organized actions uh, by people of conscience for social injustice, I could see the ways in which, you know, the Underground Railroad can be, can be, um, can be interesting. Uh, now, again, to move against the, the sort of uh, romanticization of, of the Underground Railroad, it wasn't as organized as a lot of people think. Right. So it's, um, you know, you may get maps that show these were the routes of the Underground Railroad, but those maps weren't because um, routes would disappear, would emerge in other spots, and it just depended on circumstances who was there, who was running away, who was being chased by a bounty hunter. So all of that would constantly be changing, and they would, and any sort of activity. What some of the abolitionists call practical abolitionism, which which is how they refer to the Underground Railroad, um, is it, it would be constantly in flux, right? Um, then uh, you know the activity would be quite different in the urban areas from the rural areas, and it just depended who was there, who was you know who was willing to undertake this this uh, sort of illegal activity, and so on. So if the whole question is about you know social injustice and what you know a, a group of people will organize to do i think there is some some resonance uh but um i think we would just have to judge uh in terms of um the you know the degree to which on the one hand you're thinking about civil disobedience and the degree to which you're thinking about activities that are that are not the national underground railroad National Network to Freedom that the National Park Service has been working on since the 90s has redefined what Underground Railroad or what they mean by Underground Railroad. And they're, they're seeing it as the freedom seekers themselves. And I think if we think about it in that way, I'm, 
I'm, I guess I, I feel like I'm all for having the Underground Railroad be used in any way that can help fight injustice, whether or not it's, um, you know, is it exactly like the Underground Railroad as we think about it in the North? Well, no, but what if we just redefine the way we think about the Underground Railroad and are able to bring people, make people interested in this who wouldn't otherwise have been interested? That seems like a, a pretty compelling thing to me. Yeah, I think I think um, that's that's a great point, Alice. In, in sense, if it if underground railroad means a certain commitment, right, to to solving problems of social injustice, um, you know, uh, to do that in an organized way, or not, I think I think that would be probably the most valid basis upon which to to speak of an underground railroad. I have a. One of our students here, Gerard, you said this presentation last semester, wrote a paper about thinking about these comparisons um, and referring to it as an ethos, there being an underground railroad ethos that moves over time. And that, that seems to resonate with what you're saying. Yeah. Are there things that you would recommend that folks who want to learn more about this um, could read or watch or stay tuned for? When I understood that we were going to be speaking about about yes, the underground railroad, about escape, but also just thinking about uh, waiting. I mean, I immediately thought of Harriet Jacobs's text, the "Incidents in the Life of a of a Slave Girl." I would highly recommend that to to anyone because not only did she do that deed of of waiting in the garret of her of her grandmother's house seven years, right? She she in other words, she had forced her the slave master to sell her children um, to somebody, to actually to her, um, somebody who she had the children with. He didn't know that, right? So it was a ruse in order to do that. But she hid away for seven years in a space that was maybe three feet high, um, seven feet long, nine feet, nine feet long, seven feet wide, something like that, garret of her grandmother's house, just in order to make sure that, you know, that the um, children had a future away from the plantation. And so I just think of that weight, you know, uh, to make that happen. And that is, that is a measure of, of human resilience, you know. But I think, uh, but more than a book, I also just think, and it's the kind of question that I ask rhetorically for, for listeners, for us, just thinking about even uh, the experience of an enslaved woman um, who is pregnant, thinking about the future of that child. I, I don't even think we can begin to, to fathom uh, that weight. I, I don't, you know, and it's, I think it's something, you know, to think about as, as well, because I think it, it, it brings home, um, you know, uh, the importance of of this of flight from the plantation uh, in order to secure those futures for their children. Yeah, I I'm glad to take this moment also as an invitation to think about other examples of waiting or instances of waiting that we might um, let people linger with. Um, after the episode. So thanks for that too. 
Oh, there's so much I want to say <laughs> that I still don't have. We don't have time for it. I'll try to be quick. One reading suggestion that I, well, let me start by saying that there are a lot of books that are going to be coming out in the next couple of years about enslaved people escaping to Mexico. Uh, Michaela Dane, um, Maria Esther Hamak, uh, Thomas Marie. There's a lot of books to keep an eye out that are going to be great for deepening our understanding of this escape route. Another book that I that came out last year that I would highly recommend is um, William Thomas's A Question of Freedom, which is about enslaved people who petitioned for freedom in uh, the area around the District of Columbia in Maryland. And one of his arguments is that we should be thinking about freedom seeking, not just in terms of running away to a jurisdiction that had abolished or restricted slavery, but to also think of it as enslaved people who escaped to a judge, to a lawyer who sued for their freedom because of legal infractions. And I suggest that book not only because it's beautifully written and really well done, but I think that idea of legal escape as well as physical escape uh, links up really nicely to what Gerard was talking about, about what do you do if you are an enslaved woman and you have a child? And are you going to risk bringing that child with you on this incredibly difficult, dangerous, risky escape route? Or do you wait and try to find some other opportunity for freedom, perhaps by the law? And in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, there are so many instances of women doing that. And I'll just briefly mention one because it relates to waiting, that there was a, an enslaved woman named Minerva who was born on a plantation in western Louisiana. Her enslavers took her first to Arkansas and then to what was then the Mexican state of Texas, which was a violation of Mexico's laws banning the importation of enslaved people. And those laws gave her a claim to freedom. She was on the eve of the Texas Revolution, her enslaver, the, or her, her enslaver died and her, the enslaver's wife forced Minerva and her children to go to Louisiana. And she claimed her freedom in the court of Western Louisiana on the grounds that she had been in, imported in violation of Mexico's laws and that she had been imported in violation of the United States' laws against the slave trade, which is really, it's a remarkable document. Um, her, her claim to freedom uh, by invoking these laws, but it, it, her waiting, and unfortunately she doesn't, she doesn't win this case. But the waiting, while well, that case was going through the courts, that was three years of being um, sort of protected by the court. That 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 meant something. She waited that time until her enslaver made this mistake, where that gave her a legal claim, and it was a pretty strong legal claim. It was the court, Western Louisiana, wasn't wasn't really. Uh, buying these these arguments. So so thinking about freedom seeking in legal as a legal escape, I think really opens our eyes to the ways in which enslaved women could could exercise these opportunities that maybe didn't come with the same risk of physical escape that that you were not hopefully going to be 
chased by dogs if you went to a lawyer or you were not going to be shot for trying for, for escaping without responding to, you know, a white passerby who asked you for a pass. Um, that the risks were less and the, the, the possibilities for freedom were nonetheless still there. I also think uh, that uh, Alice makes the point very well in, in her book that, you know, the access to sort of legal means was something that you could find uh, sort of much more in the Spanish tradition in Cuba, Mexico, and so on. But to imagine that within the U.S. is is, is also, you know, a, a significant contribution to give us a sort of more complex idea of, of you know, the ways in which you can go about pursuing pursuing freedom. But then also... I think you know one of the points being made is you pursue you pursue freedom, uh, you pursue justice, uh, and then having that three-year period while you're waiting for justice is is um, is something that we think about when we're also thinking about you know the long wait for justice because then because after freedom there should have been equality and since we're still waiting for that. That, that wait continues. Thanks for listening to Migrations, a world on the move, a podcast produced by Global Cornell's Migrations Global Grand Challenge cross-disciplinary, multi-species initiative that studies how the movements of people, animals, microbes, resources, ideas, and more shape our world. You can learn more about the initiative at migrations.cornell.edu, where you'll also find relevant links from this episode. Follow us on Twitter at CornellMig. This podcast is hosted by Eleanor Painter, Migrations Postdoctoral Associate with the Mario Inaudi Center for International Studies, and produced by Megan Dement. Much of the podcast was produced at Cornell University on the traditional homelands of the Gayukono, the Cayuga Nation, and we recognize the nation's sovereignty and the indigenous peoples who have lived and continue to live on this land. Our music is Basically Really by Steve Fawcett.